This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. An important meeting gets started uh, today. President Trump sits down with China's President Xi Jinping. There are a wealth of things to discuss, including China's interest in investing in the U.S., trade, North Korea, and many others. To join us in the studio and take a look at this meeting, we are welcoming back Minwan Zhao, who is Associate Professor of, Fun- of Management here at the uh, Wharton School, and also Jacques Delisle, Penn Law and Political Science Professor and also Director of the Center for East Asian Studies. Great to see you both again. Thank, Thank you very you much. Thank you for having us. Great Thank to be you. back. Uh, I touched on a couple of areas there. Are, are those the most important ones, or are there other areas that you're thinking about? Well, I think these are important areas on geopolitics, trade issues, and, uh, well, environment used to be important, but I don't think it's not, uh, It's still high on the agenda. Yeah, it's going to be trade in the economy, and on the security side, North Korea is at the top of the list. Do the, I, do the, do the issues of the South China Sea come up, do you think? They, they might. I mean, certainly it's on the security uh, agenda with the U.S., but I think much of the purpose of this meeting is to keep the relationship on an even keel to sort of have a a face-to-face between the two leaders. Uh, And I think mostly on the Chinese side, it's a concern about managing downside risk. Okay. I mean, they have a shopping list of things they'd like to see progress on, but they don't need a lot of progress. What she needs to do is to show up, stand toe-to-toe with Trump, hopefully have uh, good atmospherics. Uh, If they're bad atmospherics, he needs to show that he's tough. Uh, He's got his own party congress, his uh, essentially re-election, as it were, uh, coming up in the fall. And and that, plus the sort of backdrop of Chinese nationalism, means he needs to come out of it okay. Obviously, he wants to avoid a blow-up on the economic front. I mean, the currency manipulation label or severe trade sanctions or something like that would be a real problem. But short of that, I think he doesn't need much. They'd like to see some things. I'd like to see, for instance, uh, some U.S. give on the missile defense systems and put into South Korea. They'd probably like to see some U.S. at least reaffirmation of the one China policy on Taiwan, maybe a little bit on arms sales. Uh, but but mostly it's it's just not to have anything bad happen. So in your mind, I mean, is this meeting, is it more important for President Xi to, to come forth with agenda and, as Jacques said, you know, kind of present what China is really thinking about right now, even more so than what President Trump may be trying to do? Well, I don't think anyone knows what China or the U.S. are thinking about or what the presidents are thinking about. So right. this is the, um, you know, we've been talking about uncertainty in the past two years, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, when I was in China, people were guessing whether she was turning right while signaling left or turning left while signaling right. <laughs> and it was always a debate at the dinner table. In the U.S., you know, Trump says we're going to be um, having America first, right? We're going to stay away from the rest of the world. Who cares what's going on there? We're going to focus on the U.S. And yet, yes, you know, we cannot tolerate what's going on in Syria. We cannot tolerate what's going on in North Korea. You know, we have to do uh, do something about it. So, you know, what is it? And right. the, the strong signal they sent in the earlier days about South China Sea, and that's obviously against America first, yeah. you know, argument. So I think the world is just scratching its head. Um, what those uh, those two countries are trying to do. And if anything comes out of this meeting, one is uh, they're going to send a signal. Hopefully, they will send a signal at least to their home countries where they stand. And second, I agree with Jacques, you know, at least we can sit down and talk. We're not going to do anything disastrous to right. each other. Yeah, I think you have as two leaders, both of whom uh, – 
very much want to be in control of their own administrations. Sure. I mean, we've been talking yep. for years now about Xi Jinping grads, gathering more and more power in China into his hands and relying on a fairly close circle of advisors, moving a lot of the authority out of the sort of technocratic ministries and more into party groups that he heads. And so in that sense, the policymaking process in China has become centralized and more opaque. I hear, you know, Trump does what he does, and uh, there can be a lot of instability over time. And we've seen him dispatch or, or at least have uh, the cabinet secretary types, you know, Mattis, uh, and Tillerson go off and say things which sound much more traditional and reassuring. Right. So you've got uh, you've got a sort of very different style, one very erratic, one very cautious. Uh, but both are uh, coming out of processes where the usual rules of the game that make things predictable, the sort of mm -hmm. bureaucratic interests, the long-term commitment to policy stability, is really not as robust as it has been under prior leaders in both countries. We are joined here in studio by Jacques Delisle, uh, who's director of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the University of Pennsylvania. Minwan Zhao, who is associate professor of, Fi of management here at the Wharton School. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number. To give us a call. I guess the one thing we know that they won't be doing is apparently they won't be playing golf because President G is not a fan right. of the sport in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I think he says, you know, it's it's actually a drain or you know, it's a, very much a negative right now. Well, he's um, you know having this big uh, anti-corruption campaign back in China, so a lot of golf courses were the first ones to go. Uh, yeah, and then, and then but the you know, the contrast to Abe is interesting there, and one of the things that that uh, Chinese have been watching very closely is the success of the Abe visit to Mar-a-Lago. Now, yeah. if it depended on golf, China's got a problem, but it's probably something other than golf going on. Uh, but basically, one of the real changes that's certainly been noted in China, from Trump the campaigner to Trump the president, has been with respect to relations with Japan. Yeah. I mean, he was every bit as tough almost on Japan as he was in China on the right. campaign trail. But with Japan, we've seen a real change to a much more cooperative relationship. And I think the Chinese have studied that and would like to get some lighter or paler version of that. They would, no, they won't get as far as, uh, as Trump did. And, and, and as you mentioned a moment ago, I mean, with, with some of the things that were said during the campaign, obviously there's a, there's a lot of material for the, the, the Chinese and President Xi to come and say, uh, you know, do you truly believe this? Do you truly believe we're a currency manipulator? Do you, you know, do you believe we're bad on trade? Do you, I mean, there's so many kind of things that President Xi could bring up, not that he may, but he could bring up if he wanted to. Well, I don't know how much mileage you can gain by challenging uh, right. Trump on, on, on the tweets. Um, you know, one thing, you know, for example, uh, on the trade issues, right? He used the word like a robbery, thief, and, and yep. all these words about the trade deficit. And any serious economists will agree trade deficit is more like borrowing rather than, you know, taking away. Right. I, I imported so many stuff from you. I don't have anything going back. I wrote IOU to you, right? right? So yeah. IOUs accumulate, and that's called a trade deficit. Actually, the Chinese are complaining that um, you know they're working so hard to produce the good stuff. Instead, they just got an IOU from the U.S., which can lose value anytime soon. So this is, um, I think, I hope before any serious policies were put into you know effect as a result of those complaints. Uh, people are going to take a serious ish, uh, look at what trade deficit truly is right. and uh, what it means for the two economies. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's very useful to challenge all these slogans. Which you know, is, put out there. It, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, uh, well, just a couple of days ago, mm -hmm. there was a story out about the trade deficit, U.S. trade deficit shrinking. And part of the reason why is because 
of imports from China going down and exports from the U.S. going out. So again, it's you know it, it's it's massaging the numbers to no, a degree. But those bilateral numbers are completely meaningless, right? right? Yeah. So China has been the assembly place for all the components from Germany, from Japan, from Korea, from the Philippines, and, and all that. And finally, they put things together and ship them to the U.S. At the customs, the U.S. officer takes a look and said, oh, that's coming from China, made in China, and that's $20,000 towards the trade deficit to China. In that, you know, China may have 2%, 3% of it. You know, right. Taking iPhone example, I think the labor in China accounts for 2% of the total value in your iPhone. Uh, the majority came from other countries. So what happens is that when China uh, stops being this assembly place for everyone else, you see more direct trade. You know, for example, Japan or, or Germany start to ship more things directly to the U.S. So as a result, you see the shift in bilateral numbers, right. but uh, it has nothing to do with the overall trade deficit. I mean, there, the is a, has. Yeah, there is sort of a curious misalignment between what really should be the economic issues and what President Trump has put on the agenda. Okay. Uh, that is, this bilateral trade deficit, as Minyan says, is meaningless. It's a U.S. deficit with the rest of the world. It just so happens that a lot of the stuff in the last destination before reaching the U.S. comes mm -hmm. from China, so it's counted as a China export. China looks like this incredibly formidable trading power, and it is, but it's not as much as it looks. If you add right. up Chinese exports and imports, it's you know, half of GDP ratio of, 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 yeah. of trade to, uh, to GDP. Uh, but that's, again, illusory because a lot of it is stuff China imports, assembles, and ships back out. <clears throat> that's changed some over time, but it's still a big part of the, uh, of the story. But if you look at what the focus has been on, which is currency manipulation yep. and the trade deficit, that's not where the issues are. I mean, the renminbi is not significantly out of line. It's it's not free-floating, and mm -hmm. it should be marketized, and China's been moving toward that. But it's not way out of line. Right. And the trade deficit, as we've just been discussing, doesn't really tell you much. Where the issues lie are on things like Chinese industrial policy to promote certain industries, right. uh, an unlevel playing field for U.S. firms going into China, uh, a variety of what might be called mercantilist and industrial policy and somewhat protectionist policies all bundled together. Those have indirect effects on the things we're focused on, but, it, but it's not really where the issues are. And if I were if I were Xi Jinping, I'd be happy to be talking about currency. things like the bilateral <laughs> deficit and currency because it's just it's just a weak right. position. I, I totally agree. I think the, uh, the so-called industrial policy or a lot of nationalistic policies disguised as industrial policy uh, is the place where they can have some meaningful discussion on. Uh, and again, you know, at the beginning, I said it's very hard to gauge where the leaders are going, right? right. If take China, for example. She has been talking about globalization, um, you know, one road, one belt, yep. taking the leadership role in free trade uh, negotiations, taking over the U.S., you know, as the leader of free trade. And on the other hand, there are many policies in place to, you know, make it more difficult to uh, compete on the same playing field. So, um, you know, these are the things that can possibly be discussed and... Uh, but that was part of also what uh, what uh, President Xi was talking about when he was at Davos recently, correct? Right. Yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, we welcome, well, for those of us who believe in free trade, we <laughs> welcome those messages. And, you know, China has rightly removed a lot of the so-called supranational treatment to foreigners, right? In the right. old days, as long as you're a foreigner, you have tax breaks, you have all the subsidies, you have all the goodies um, you have. So they've removed that. But the recent changes are a little concerning in, in the same rhetoric Trump had, like foreigners are earning our money. Foreigners are, you know, uh, getting profit from the economy, not to realize that the domestic economy is growing 
when the foreigners are earning their money, sure. right? So I think this is like the mentality on both in both countries. While you know you see the messages going out to promote free trade and so on. So I think, yeah, knowing where the policies lie, that may be the area for meaningful discussion. But I don't know if they will get to those details. Well, there was the story of uh, several weeks ago about uh, whether or not uh, President Xi, when he came to the United States, was going to have this plan of. of China investment in U.S. infrastructure, and that was a you know that was a big story for about right. what three or four days, if memory serves me. Mm-hmm. Is that something that potentially is brought up when these two uh, when these two leaders meet? I mean, I think you it is not uncommon in these kind of meetings for there to be some showcasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. of economic activity. So in yeah. years past, it's been buying a bunch of Boeing planes. Uh, you know, the infrastructure thing, I think that came up when it looked like Trump was going to move more quickly on a U.S. infrastructure bill, because if there's a trillion mm-hmm. dollars out there for infrastructure, you know, Chinese companies are going to want to be part of that. I think that's receded partly because of the U.S. politics right. yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, I think, again, I think these are the meaningful discussions they should have. I don't know if they will get into those details because, again, both are worried about the signaling uh, signals they're sending because the Trump administration has said repeatedly, we're going to look into the Chinese investment in the U.S., right? right yep. We're going to put a ban on these massive acquisitions and end right. up saying that, oh, now we open up the infrastructure investment to the Chinese. It, they're worried about the, the signals it's sending. But... Um, China has been using the U.S. as an excuse for some nationalistic policies. Look, look what they're doing to Huawei, and therefore we can do it to Cisco. Look what they're doing to our investment. As a result, we can demand this and that from Intel. So, you know, hopefully, you know, face-to-face communications can reduce this kind of um, lack of trust between the two countries. But again, I... What's the the status of, of the Chinese economy right now? It's doing fine. I think uh, a lot of it is still prompted up by real estate. This yeah. is a time bomb uh, everyone is worried about. But at least, you know, it's kind of uh, trying to veer away from the predicted last year. Uh, this time last year, everyone was predicting a, a hard landing. Yeah. It was kind of saved by the real estate market, but um, that can be a time bomb. Jacques? Yeah, I think it's it, the transition to the new normal of slower growth. I think that's gone more smoothly than uh, some of the skeptics would have predicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are significant problems there, but they're really more long-term problems, I think, than immediate crisis. I mean, you could have a debt problem. The real, part of the real estate issue is lots of, of borrowing that's uh, that state spending that's not really right. ultimately uh, sustainable. But you know, people have been predicting the bursting of a Chinese bubble for a long time, and right. it's, it's proved... Uh, pretty resilient. I mean, they're obviously worried about it, and China has its economic populace as well, people who have not been doing well who are angry. Uh, But I think a lot of the policy energy is going into the long-term things of an aging population, flattening growth rates, environmental costs, that kind of thing. On the bright side, China is um, starting to focus on the long-term strategic in areas, for example, automation. They took a very uh, active approach to promote the research and the development of automation technologies. Uh, you know, when factories are moving out of China, they say, you know what, now we are not going to produce shoes and clothes. We're going to produce the machines that produce shoes and clothes, right? right? right. So this is a different <laughs> mentality from what the U.S. focus is on. Let's bring the jobs of producing shoes and, and, uh, and the clothes back. So 
it's very mixed. You know, the, uh, there are short-term uh, policies, you know, for example, on real estate and many other things. They look very short-term and worrying to me. But in, in, there are also other policies focusing on the long-term strategic growth. But, but if they're looking at automation as, as being one of the key potential drivers, that's a forward-thinking policy, as you said. Uh-huh. They're, to a degree, a step ahead of where we are here in the United States. Yes, and not only that, but I think they're focusing a lot on – in. The government is thinking a lot of money on deep learning, on artificial intelligence, on a lot of frontier technologies. Hopefully, you know, that's like a leapfrogging opportunity for China uh, to go past the dependence on on foreign technology. Jacques? Yeah. I mean, you basically have um, an aging population and you have a lot of money being invested in education. And what Mm -hmm. that tells you is you need people who are doing brain jobs, not brawn jobs. Uh, And China's lost its cost advantages as it's Mm -hmm. become more developed. And so there is this focus on the things that will pay off. It's IT, it's clean energy, uh, it's robotics, it's all of these these kinds of things. And this is really where the US should be focused. Because if you look at what's happening, the real threats to the US economy are not the nominal trade deficit or a manipulated currency. It's that China is catching up in a lot of these industries, uh, partly by IP theft, partly by indigenous development, partly by industrial policy that encourages local development and local purchasing. Um, and it's, you know, that's the, and partly by acquisition. I mean, we've seen a lot of acquisition of, of IP intensive companies. I think I did the Syngenta thing was just uh, just cleared yeah. regulatory clearance. Yep. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of that kind of thing going on, and that's that's significant. There is uh, there's also North Korea as well, which we haven't talked about much, and, and obviously that's that's going to be something that that I, I would think is going to be brought up this weekend, mm-hmm. especially since uh, we're seeing uh, missiles fired into the into the sea out mm-hmm. there, uh, pretty much now on a biweekly basis at this point. Yeah, North Korea, the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, it's a really, yeah, it's right. a really, it's obviously not a big economic issue, uh, given their economy is about the size of I don't know Delaware or something. But, um, but you know, it's it's um, it's a real uh, challenge on the security front, and you know, it is just really, really intractable. Uh, uh, North Korea has chosen a strategy of survival by being dangerous and yeah. by being threatening, mm-hmm. uh, and the concern is with uh, the youngest Kim, with Kim Jong Un now as a leader, that maybe some of the knowing how to go up to the edge and not across it, uh, some of that learning may not have passed down generation to generation. Uh, but there is, how to deal with it is just really, really difficult. Yeah. Uh, China and the U.S. have fundamentally different concerns about North Korea. Yes, China has gotten impatient with Kim. It's embarrassing to be propping him up all the time. He gives them headaches. Yeah. Uh, and he costs them some money in terms of support. And uh, Chinese banks and others are beginning to get worried that if the U.S. Uh, really manages to ratchet up the sanctions, they're going to get hurt, they're going to get a bad public reputation, and they'll bear some economic costs. Uh, China's real concern is disorderly collapse in North Korea uh, and unification under a South Korean leadership, Mm -hmm. which would still be a U.S. allied country. That's their bad case scenario and refugee flows that might come with Mm -hmm. that. Our bad case scenario is very different. The U.S. bad case scenario is proliferation of weapons, the the ability to threaten the U.S. with a uh, a missile that can deliver uh, nuclear arms, and of course, certainly the ability to incinerate Seoul and and, um, U.S. allies Mm -hmm. in the region. So when you have such different bad case scenarios, it's very hard to get cooperation. And the Chinese, I think, one of the things that's going to be on Xi Jinping's mind is how seriously do we take this uh, statement by Tillerson that the the period of strategic patience is over, we may have to take direct unilateral action? It may be just an attempt to get China to be more cooperative, but if it's a real a threat to use force, that changes the equation a lot. And you know, China's not happy about that, the, the missile defense system. I think uh, China has publicly exaggerated the degree to which that threatens Chinese security, but it's certainly not something they like. 
I agree. There's a, a game theory, you know, typical game theory uh, proposition saying that there's a strategic advantage of playing mad even if you're not. <laughs> right, right? right. So, you know, one possibility is that they're just playing mad and the second is truly mad. So, you know, the strategic response will be different, but you cannot tell one from the other. Um, I think the Chinese leadership really, really hated the status quo. They, they hate what's going on right. here, but they would hate alternative even more. So it's it's in a bind. Then realistically, why hasn't China done more to to kind of change the the playing field a little bit here? I, I mean, as strong as they are as an entity, you would mm-hmm. think that they would they may have more influence than obviously the United States would to try and you know to try and maybe change the the format here a little bit. I mean, they do have more influence, but the question is sort of what's in it for them. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, the U.S. could make North Korea a top priority in U.S.-China relations, but there's a certain transactional quality to this kind of thing. You trade off one issue area against another, uh, especially when you're asking the other side to do something that it doesn't see as particularly in its interest. Uh, and there's really no good uh, outcome in the North Korea situation for China unless North Korea does something that China has long urged it to do but can't really force it to do, which is liberalize, which is to follow the mm-hmm. Chinese model from the 70s, the Vietnam yeah. model from the 80s, and obviously the decades that follow that. And there have been these little moments in time here and there, not so much since the new Kim took over, where it looked like North Korea might be going down that path. So that has often been the kind of shiny object that might work out, right. but there's no appetite for that now. And I think China's looking at it going, well, either we keep propping him up, even though he's a real pain in the neck and an embarrassment, or we risk a disorderly collapse. So my personal reading, I, I wouldn't say it's true, is still the, the dilemma of treating a real madman or a, a pretending to be a madman mad because the risk of being very, very tough on Korea is that you are going to irritate the truly madman and have you know, really bad consequences. So, right. you know, one uh, one concern is that they're not going to back off because of sanction. Instead, people are starving. Instead, there will be unrest. Instead, there will be immigrants flying over the border. You know, you don't like uh, uh, a neighbor, such a close la- neighbor, in the collapsing mode, right? right? So if China gets really tough, in, there are two possibilities. One, the government, you know, came will back off and say, yeah. okay, it's being so tough, we'll cooperate. That's a good outcome. Right. But what if they're truly mad? If that's the case, you push too hard and you bring the company, uh, country to a collapse um, without any you know, backing off from the leadership. As a result, you have a collapsing economy right next to you. So I think mm-hmm. this is a concern uh, China has been uh, having. And in terms of the you know, Tillerson argument and what U.S. will do, uh, another important consideration China has is what's their role to play if the U.S. want to you know, take any actions, right. which side they're on, and you know, if they're going to take out North Korea anyway, should we be part of it at least? So so that we can be on the negotiation right. you know, table afterwards. And they couldn't really be Switzerland in this case. There's no way they would have to they would no, have, no. they would have to choose one right. way or the other. Uh, choosing which side of the negotiation table you want exactly. to be at the end of it. Exactly, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you know, think of what it looks like if you're Xi Jinping, who is the man presiding over the China dream, China being this superpower, yeah. know, near peer of the US, if the US is using military force on your border. 
And that's just that's very bad optics. Um, in addition to the to the nightmarish consequences from that, including the, the possible terrible refugee flows from North Korea and the possibility that backed into a corner, uh, North Korea might use those nuclear weapons. Right. I mean, it does yeah. it does have them, and that has changed the equation. Mm-hmm. Great to have you both here. Thanks Thank very you. much. All the best. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Mimo Zhao from the Wharton School, Jacques Delisle uh, from uh, Penn Law, and also director of the Center for East Asian Studies. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.edu.